is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino at chumbacasino.com. Choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry. Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hey folks, welcome to The Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. On this bonus episode, I am talking with Sam Hamm. We were originally talking about the movie Never Cry Wolf, which is one of his first gigs. This is the second part of our interview where I shifted gears a little bit and was asking him about some other things, including his version of the Fantastic Four. I know last time we talked a lot about Batman and... When I look up your name, that's the thing that always comes to the top. You know, Sam Ham, he worked on Batman. I am curious though, this was one of your first gigs, if I'm correct, working on Never Cry Wolf. And how did you come to that? And and if you don't mind, I'd like to ask you how you kind of got into the screenwriting business. Those are actually uh slight variations on the same question because Never Cry Wolf was the first actual production that I ever worked on. I, you know, written a couple of spec screenplays and stuff like that before, but the way I got into it is, is actually kind of hilarious. It is a fluke that I'm in the, the movie business at all. I had a couple of buddies in the late seventies and we were all sitting around semi-employed with and not much to do, uh, sort of like, as, you know, as people in the pandemic of today, we decided that, you know, since we had a lot of free time, maybe we should put it to good use and we would hole up in a room for, you know, 10 days and see if we could write a screenplay. And we actually did. And it was a, a, a pretty bad screenplay. It was about a, it was about a new wave band and, you know, various shenanigans and so forth and so on. The weird thing that happened was one of us had a good friend who was the daughter of Jay Preston Allen. And I don't know if you know Jay's name or not, but she was a pretty influential screenwriter in her day. She wrote Hitchcock's Marnie and uh, she wrote uh, Cabaret and she wrote Prince of the City and all of this kind of stuff. And it turned out that she had a development deal with Warner Brothers. She was partnered with Sidney Lumet and, you know, they were going to do some pictures together and they were also going to develop some other projects on the side for for Warner's. Two of us were horrified that the third guy had taken our crummy first draft and shown it to Jay's daughter because we didn't think it was ready to be shown yet. Then we found we were even more horrified because we found out that the daughter had passed the draft on to Jay. And we were, you know, we were sort of like holding her out as our big hope. You know, she was our she was our best connection to the movie business. And we were furious that this guy had, you know, just kind of gone in behind the backs of the other two of us. He was very self-assured, you know, he thought, well, you know, we have this draft, why not show it to people? The big shock came when Jay actually bought it for 
next to no money. She took out took out an option on it, and you know it was it was basically enough to uh, pay our rent for three or four months each. And so you know we were we were very excited by this development. And the thing I did not find out until a couple of years later. I don't think it was the quality of the screenplay or the appeal of the idea or anything like that. But Jay's daughter, who was, you know, our sort of connection to Jay, was at this point seriously thinking about moving to Kenya, where she wanted to work with the Kenyan National Theater Company. And Jay was looking for an excuse to keep her daughter in the United States. And so she made her the she made her the associate producer on this script, which her, her daughter had brought to her. <laughs> I swear, I think I think to this day, the only reason I'm in the movie business is because Jay did not want her daughter uh, to go and join the Kenyan Theater Company. <laughs> but anyway, to uh, get back to the second part of this story. Jay had done a couple of drafts of Never Cry Wolf, which her husband, Louis Allen, was the producer, one of the producers on. Louis Maul had been attached to it, and they were all set to go with Louis Maul, and they suddenly had financing troubles, and it got too late in the year to shoot. Part of it is it's because it's a movie set in the Arctic. There's only a very small window of time every year when you can shoot. You're basically, you basically have from like March to August, and you know after that, there's no hope of having a film production, you know, there's not even enough light during the daytime to shoot a movie up there. During the hiatus, they lost Louis Maul. They brought on Carol Ballard. And once Carol Ballard was attached, Disney came in as a financier. So the movie Never Cry Wolf became actually the first independent acquisition that was ever released through Disney. It was the first movie they ever released that they hadn't made in-house because Jay did not want to go up into the Arctic and hang out with Carol Ballard and a bunch of wolves for several months at a time. She was looking for, you know, somebody young, cheap, and valuable to uh, throw into this job and came to me and said, would you like to talk to these guys about it? I said, sure. And I went in and took a couple of meetings with uh, Carol Ballard and the other people in the, in the production. And he gave, <laughs> we had one meeting where he gave me, he gave me this wolf stare. He gave me what, is, what I found out later was the famous Carol Ballard wolf stare. He sort of like turns and stares at you and he, he gives you this look sort of like, ooh, is this guy going to kill me and eat me right here? And I sort of like looked right back at him, you know, not aggressively or anything, but sort of like, uh, you know, <laughs> and how are you today, sir? But uh, ap- apparently he liked the way that I looked back at him. So I got the job and I was, I was up there for two stints. I think I was after Jay and before Ken Kesey who was on the project for about, uh, he was on it for about six weeks. I was up there in the spring, and then they said, "Oh, we're we're bringing on Ken Kesey." And I thought, "All right, well, I, you know, I can't can't compete with Ken Kesey." And I went back to my apartment in Brooklyn, and I was just sort of goofing around. They said, "Well, you know, keep working, keep writing scenes and stuff like that." And I said, "Well, you know, why 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 am I going to write scenes? You know, Ken Kesey is up there doing screenplay." So I get this frantic call one weekend, and they say, "Well, we found Ken Kesey face down in the bathtub, and he was tripping, and he almost drowned." <laughs> somewhere, somewhere in Skagway, Alaska, you have managed to come across some bad LSD. <laughs> they called me up and they said, "Bring all the work you've done." I'd been back in Brooklyn for like a, you know a month and change. I hadn't done a lick of work. I hadn't done any work. I said, "Well, you know, I have to like you know I have to uh, uh, I have to I have to do some stuff before I can come up, but I can come up like you know next Monday." And so I spent the next you know uh, forty eight seventy two hours straight 
just trying to, you know, crank out some stuff that looked like I had actually been working on a script and over this, over this time period. And, and uh, that's how I got to be on Never Cry Wolf. The picture was in production for a year, I guess, in 1980. They ran out of good weather and had to go back the following spring to do reshoots. And so I think before they were done, they actually had a total of something like 10 writers, including screenplay writers and narration writers. We had one of the biggest credits that the Writers Guild has ever awarded because we had three screenwriters on the screenplay credit and then three writers on the narration credit. And, you know, they had, it was, it was, it was wild. They had all kinds of different people that I think they had Michael Herr come in for a while. The guy that wrote dispatches, the Vietnam book, he tried to do some uh, voiceover for it, which he had also done on apocalypse. Now it was wild. It was not a writer's showcase. I'll put it that way. If you look at the shooting continuity where they, you know, do a shot by shot thing with, um, you know, all the dialogue, all the action, et cetera, et cetera. It was only about 43 pages long. And most of it is you're out in nature and it's, it's quiet and something happens. And maybe you hear a wolf howl or something like that. But, you know, it was, it, it wasn't, it wasn't the sort of thing where you go, go and see it. It's come along and say, Hey, man, that was a sparkling, witty screenplay. I was like, you know, 24 and I thought, okay, hey, great. I've got my name on an actual motion picture. This is incredible. My career is underway. And then I discovered that I, you know, couldn't get a job of any kind for like the next three years. So it goes. I mean, the movie didn't, movie didn't come out until 1980. I want to say four. It might have been 1983. Somewhere in there. It took, it took about three years to come out because, you know, the first cut, the Carol was, was a documentarian. That's where he started out. He was used to basically constructing a movie from 10 tons of footage. You know, he would he would go out and he would shoot as much as he could on, you know, whatever the subject of his film was and would come back and put it together. And it would kind of evolve as he got more footage and more stuff to add. And as he, you know, found new ways of putting it together. And so, you know, it was kind of it was kind of good training for me because the movie was kind of changing in his head. You know, every few days as he as he got more stuff, you know, he would, he would start to have new ideas and he would start to see new ways that the story could be told. And it was the first movie I'd ever worked on. And so, you know, I didn't know that there were guys who just kind of like, you know, went out and shot the scene. The scene didn't turn out the way they liked it. They went back and shot the scene again, just tried to make it fit to a pattern. He was he was always trying to sort of find the patterns that would make the movie hold together. It was good training for me, good experience. It's uh, one of those situations where you never quite know what's going to happen on the location. You never quite know whether you're going to get the footage you need. And so you may have to sort of change the whole approach at the last minute. We had one stretch. There's a, a scene in the movie where Charlie Martin Smith is doing a bit where he's marking territory. And he's he's going around. He drinks He drinks tea and he pisses on a rock or something like that. He's waiting to see if what the wolves will do when he starts when he starts marking their territory. And so we just needed we needed a shot of a wolf taking a piss on a rock, which seems like it should not be should not be that hard to get, except we shot for a fucking week and a half all day, every day, trying to get one shot of our three main wolves pissing on a rock, and we could not get it could not get it. And Carol was going, you know, more and more frantic every day because, you know, <laughs> we were, you know, we were paying the whole crew to be out here. 
and it seemed you know it was it was like the wolves were holding it you know holding it in just to mess with us i mean they they put Gatorade in their water they did everything they could think of if you watch the movie you will see there's a moment when a wolf goes up and pisses on a rock and what is actually happening is that his leg is being jerked upward by a wire he doesn't lift his leg in the way that a wolf would normally lift his leg he just happens to be passing a rock and all of a sudden his leg jerks upward and you cut away very very quickly very quickly, very, very quickly, you cut away to Charlie Martin's face, sort of nodding sagely as you hear the sound of wolf piss hitting the rock, dubbed over the shot. It was, you know, it was, it, there you go, man against nature, Carol against against the wolves. You went up, you came back, you went up. How long was that period from the first time you went up there to the last time you got back? I think it was about five months. Five months with, you know, with an intervening month because it was... Uh, I was up there from like March through May and then came back like at the end of June and stuck around until uh, mid-August probably would be my guess. You know, I would, I would have to, I would have to check that out to tell you for sure. But yeah, I was up there for a, a good long stretch. We started out in Northern British Columbia. We were actually out in the, the wilderness when I first came onto uh, the picture. Everybody was living in uh, uh, trailers. We then came closer into civilization. We were out in Nome for a while, which was really interesting because, you know, Nome, if you look at Alaska, you know, it looks sort of like a profile of a face with a nose sticking out in the middle. Nome is on the nose and the roads in Nome only go about 30 miles outside of town and then they stop. You know, everything that comes into Nome comes in by air. There is no real ground travel or anything like that. And it's actually closer to what was then the Soviet Union than it is to any sort of major population center in Alaska or Canada. We were out there for a while. That was a pretty bleak place because it was populated almost entirely by miners who wanted to go out and make a lot of money in a short amount of time and didn't care how miserable it made them. They just wanted to stockpile some money that they could take back home or send back home to their families. Any night of the week, you would go into a bar at 5 o'clock and uh, order a beer. And by 5.30, most of the people in the bar were so drunk they were face down already. Kind of a bleak environment, I would say. You know, But the cool thing is we were part of the time we were, we were hanging out briefly in Skagway and Juneau, mostly in Skagway, which was the port of access for uh, British Columbia. And it was weird in 1980. Because there was the U.S. had an embargo, a trade embargo with Russia, and you know the the big deal was we couldn't uh, take part in the Olympics. The port of Skagway, because it served British Columbia, was the only port on American soil where Russian ships could dock. So as a result, the crew would be out shooting, and I would I would usually be you know back in my hotel room writing whatever they needed, waiting for the next phone call. Hey, we need some this, we need some that so forth and so on. And so I would usually have some free time in the afternoon and I'd go over to one of the bars and shoot pool. And I got a chance to shoot pool with not only Russian sailors, but red Chinese sailors, which was highly entertaining. You know, I thought, hey, hey, I'm a small town kid and here I am in Skagway, Alaska, shooting pool with Russians, red Chinese. Didn't foresee that happening, put it that way. I had a chance to read uh, a draft from, I think like June 79. Jay's name was on it and Curtis Hansen's name was on it. And 
there are familiar beats, you know, like uh, the mice uh, waking him right. up mm-hmm. and just like there, there's certain things that I'm seeing in there, but it was still Farley Mawat's name as the main character. He hadn't been Tyler yet. And there were other, of course, differences as we went through there. When you got on there, what was the script like? And then what were some of the things that you added into it? The draft that you read is probably pretty close to the one that was in existence when I came on, because I think um, the original one is, uh, the original one is Hanson. Jay had uh, done a couple of, a couple of sets of revisions. Richard Kletter wound up coming on the year after he came on for the second year of shooting at some point after I was on it. And so the credit on the movie is uh, Hanson, me and Richard Kletter. The stuff that we added, a lot of it is just basically stuff that we found when we were making the movie that was was interesting. The whole sort of subplot with the Inuit hunter who is trying to get his teeth replaced was basically result of casting that actor and he after a couple of weeks did not want to be on production at all he was not enjoying himself and the way that they kept him on the production was to promise him that his teeth would be ready by the time he finished his part by the time he finished his shooting he would get the uh, he would get the false teeth that subplot is one that was actually working itself out on the set as we were going along but, you know, it's a, a lot of it uh, was just a, a matter of we have this situation or we found this trying to adapt to what's there, what we have. There was one moment that I remember vividly where there was a scene held over from Jay's draft. And it was a scene where Charles Martin Smith is sitting around a campfire listening to all of the Inuit telling sort of, you know, their various the tales, creation tales, and so forth and so on. Jay had put something in there about Lake Kuiak. And so I thought, all right, that, that seems like, you know, that seems like a, you know, a good piece of grit or, you know, so I assumed I figured there was a Lake Kuiak. And so I, uh, I threw Lake Kuiak into the scene when I was doing a rewritten version of it. And I walked over to the set that night. They were, they were shooting indoors in a warehouse. The Inuit actors started laughing and pointing at me and like, you know, elbowing me, all kinds of stuff like that. And I'm, I'm going to like, I'm going to the assistant director and I say, hey, what's, what's going on? What's so funny? And I said, oh, well, they figured that was you. Kuyak is the Inuktitut word for fuck. So you have them, you have them telling some story about Lake Fuck. And I went like, I didn't even, I didn't even do it. I'm innocent. I swear. I didn't know. It, apparently, uh, apparently it seemed like something that I would do. So nobody believed me. Go figure. Have you always been a troublemaker? <laughs> I didn't know I was. You're in Alaska, which I've I've never been to Alaska, but from what I've seen, it's gorgeous. But what was the weather like? Was it was it a okay shoot? Was it miserable? Because just the story about the wolf not raising its leg for five days sounds like it could have just been a nightmare. It usually wasn't too terrible. I mean, we had we had stretches where it was quite cold. I mean, when I, when I first landed, it was, you know, it was parka weather. You know, everybody had their, you know, fur lined hoods up, all that kind of, all that kind of stuff. We were there for stretches when it was fairly balmy, you know, you could go out in a light windbreaker or something like that. Other times it was just cold, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's incredibly beautiful. I mean, I got to see, got to see the Aurora Borealis at night, at night for long stretches, which uh, is one thing you don't forget. 
the landscape is just beautiful. You know, we were shooting in Skagway, which is sort of an enclosed harbor on three sides with mountains around it. You understand why the cruise ships and stuff like that all want to come up there and stop. I mean, that was the main industry of Skagway was tourism. And, you know, so the the streets are basically, you know, bar, you know, knickknack shop, uh, souvenir shop, bar, burger joint, bar, knickknack shop, souvenir shop, scrimshaw shop, uh, et cetera, et cetera. But, and, you know, then you pass, then you pass someplace where they do like a nightly show where they dress up like the gay nineties and so forth. So the whole town existed. They were importing people every summer to come and staff the hotels because, you know, that was the, there was a little stretch when they could make a lot of money. And it was, you know, basically from May through August every year, you know, after that stretch of clement weather and sunlight ended, you couldn't get people to go there for love or money. So you were up there in 1980. The film doesn't come out until 83. What are you doing in the meantime? And and do they even have the courtesy of like, hey, we're having the premiere. Come on out, Sam. Let's do this. Oh, yeah, sure. You know, we, we kept up with it. But the first cut of the movie was four hours long and it didn't have any wolf footage. You know, <laughs> you know Carol, Carol had not gotten around to the part where you insert the wolves into Never Cry Wolf. As, as you would expect, it was kind of, you know, changing and evolving over this period of time. And it took, you know, it took 1980 and 1981 to shoot the summer. And, and then they were trying to figure out how to make the narrative work because so much of it is internal. You know, it's basically one guy. It's one guy who is alone in the wilderness. And, you know, we kept trying to come up with ways to get the sort of necessary exposition across. You know, he would talk to himself. He would talk to the wolves. He would, you know, all of this, all of this kind of stuff. And, you know, because Carol was, violently opposed to using voiceover. You know, then there was a point where they just kind of threw up their hands and said, well, we got to use some voiceover. And they did. And, it, you know, it, it worked fine. I mean, it's not intrusive. It gets you over some of the rough spots in the narrative where you don't quite know what the heck is going on. Sam, thank you so much for your time. This was great talking with you. Oh, it's easy and fun. Happy to gas on whenever, uh, whenever I get the chance. <laughs> 